Well, I tell my team now, you're the best people I can find today, but I'm always looking for somebody better. An organization, whether you're playing sports or trying to do deals, it's the yeah. same thing. I wear a bracelet that says we go to bed tired, we wake up hungry. It all goes to zero at midnight. Mm. That's my philosophy. Don't find your purpose, find your skill. Then find the problem you are most qualified to solve. So everybody watching this that's afraid to invest in themselves, people wait for courage to come, but that's not how the formula works. Courage doesn't come. What comes first is a What's up, Wild Butters? Today, I've got a guy with, I would say, somewhat of a similar background to me. He started his career in sports, um, actually coaching girls basketball and becoming a state champion and best-selling author during that time. He then transitioned into buying real estate, now owns over $25 million worth of real estate, and coaches corporations and sales teams and everything else. I've got none other than Coach Burt. What up, man? Good to see you, man. Oh, I forgot to mention, you've written 18 books. A lot of books, yes. That's the craziest stat, I think. Yes. Do you, would you say that's like your most impressive achievement? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's kind of a labor of love. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like in the beginning, I was writing books because people were just asking me, how are you winning? Yeah. They wanted to know what I was doing to win. Yeah. And I, and I got tired of trying to explain it to people because I was using some unique methodologies. So I said, man, I'm just going to start writing books about it. And mm. you can read the books. Yeah. And I had no intention of really doing what I do today, to be honest with you. Yeah. You know, it's funny is I've written two books mm -hmm. and my first one I wrote in 2018 and then I didn't write, you know, wealthy way until five years later almost. Yes. And they both came out of that same, you know, just people kept asking, yeah. Hey, how do you flip a house? How do you do it? So I was like, dude, I'm tired of explaining this. Let me put in a book. Yeah. And then, you know, as I got on social media, people were like, dude, how do you run all these businesses? How are you still spending time with your family? How are you putting your faith first and right. doing all these things? I'm like, all right, I'll write another book. Yes. Well, I think I think when people are constantly asking you what you're doing, a you have a monetizable product, yep, or yep. service. But I, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't start to monetize. I actually was trying to win championships at this place. Um, was using a lot of. I was a deep disciple of Covey from 18 to 25, so I was using all these unique methods with my players. I was teaching every player the seven habits of highly effective people. Yep. In those days, good to great. This was back in 1999, man. Yeah. And this was unheard of. And so people are always saying, man, what are you doing? <laughs> like your kids play hard. They play discipline. They have uh, a lot of chemistry. What they really have was a lot of intangibles, mm. things you can't measure, but you could see and feel. And so business people are like, man, I wish my team worked like that. And I, I wish I could get my team to play like that. Yeah. And so what are you doing? And that really prompted me to write the books. What do you think about what Deion Sanders is doing right now? I think um, I think Deion Sanders has a lot of confidence, and 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 when you can transfer confidence to other people, like he can, yeah, that's an incredibly valuable skill. Yeah, and I think to change a culture, it's not easy to come in and change a culture that quick. Even yeah. if you go back to the days when Saban took over Alabama, mm -hmm. it wasn't in his first year that he, you know, I mean, they really weren't that great in his first year. You go back, I go back and look at coaches because I'm a big fan of coaches, mm -hmm. right? And to come in and change a culture to build identity and raise standards and create a language and create a, a an accountability structure. Uh, so I'm a big fan of Deion Sanders. Yeah. You know, it's funny is I, I talk about sports a lot because it's influenced my business career tremendously. Yes. And, you know, I think so many of the things that we take from our coaches in sports obviously apply to the business space, which is what I have found out. It's what you found out. Yep. It's what guys like Tim Grover 100%. are doing and finding out. And I just think that, man, I mean, an organization is 
an organization, whether you're playing sports or trying to do deals or trying to sell products, it's the yeah. same thing. It It is the same thing. And, and what I noticed more, in, you know, over everything when I started coaching businesses at 31 is most businesses play defense. Mm. They play in a defensive posture. And as a basketball coach, I wanted to get the ball to the midline in less than 2.3 seconds. Oh, you were the Phoenix Suns before. Yeah, I, I wanted I wanted <laughs> to just come, to just come at the competition so hard and so much that they really just kind of broke their spirit. Yeah. So I was one of the first coaches to have a full time strength and conditioning coach. Mm. This is in 1999 for women. Yeah. Because this was unheard of unheard of for women in 1999. I had a full time strength and conditioning coach. It was still kind of like unheard of for men. I mean, yeah. I remember watching that Bulls documentary. Jordan right. was like just starting to work out. That's right. With Tim. That's right. Yeah. So I, I was big on let's play offense, man. And when I started coaching businesses, they play defense. I would say, how do you acquire customers? And I'd say, well, that's a good strategy. And how many strategies are you using? How many leads are you generating? And how good is your follow-up? And are you going seven to 15 touches? And they were like, no, we don't do any of this stuff. And what shocked me is many times it was multi-billion dollar companies. I'd come into a $2 billion bank that wanted to get to $5 billion and they weren't doing basic things about customer acquisition and follow-up and conversion. And I was like, man, how, do, how, <laughs> how, how are you doing $2 billion? But the truth was they could have been doing $10 billion if yeah. they just got better. Mm. And and Ryan, what, what showed me that I could really do this in the business world was my first assignment, $2 billion bank. I took 500 people and I increased the sales by 43% in the first year. Mm. And they would not let me hire any new people. So they said, look, here's your people. It was a 08, 09, somewhere around there, recession. We're not firing anybody. Don't tell us we got bad people. Just take our current people and make them better. By the way, how do you feel about that? Like now, I mean, obviously you were hired to do a job, so you're like, whatever, you know. This yep. is what the, but I kind of disagree with that. I'm yep. like, bro, you got to get rid of the toxic people. Oh, oh yeah, I think. I, well, <laughs> one of the one of the wears on me over a number of years was me coming into companies and then give them giving me average people, yeah. and saying make them great. And and I used to say you can take somebody who's really bad and, and, and make them bad <laughs> or somebody that's, you know, okay. Make, and make, make them, them good, <laughs> but it'd be better if we just got better people, Yeah, that you know? Would be and easier. I think, I think that's my philosophy today. I mean, I typically give people 90 days to show me if they've been coached. Now it's one thing for them not to be coached and say they're bad. Yeah. But once you give them coaching, if they don't show some sign of improvement, some reactivation of what I call the prey drive in them in 90 days, then you got the wrong people. Yeah, no, a thousand percent. I think going back to Deion Sanders, I was watching the thing on 60 Minutes mm -hmm. and they were showing the clip of him the first day he walked into Colorado yep. and they had like 80 people in there. He goes, hey, my job's to get rid of all of you. Yeah. And everyone's like, what? Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, you fools were one in 11 last year. That's right. Your culture sucks. You guys, you haven't proved anything. You don't deserve a scholarship. That's right. Yeah. And so, well, and I think the same thing. I think... um, I always say you're the best people. I tell my team now, you're the best people I can find today. Mm -hmm. But I'm always looking for somebody better. <laughs> and, I love and, that. I love that. <laughs> I'm always looking for somebody better and and hungrier. And, you know, I, I wear a, a, a bracelet that says we go to bed tired, we wake up hungry. Mm. It all goes to zero at midnight. Mm. That's my philosophy. It all goes, no matter how much you have, no matter how much money you have in the bank, just tell yourself and tell your brain. It all goes to zero at midnight because in the sports world where you come from and I come from, you could play great one night, get complacent the next day, read the hype. In the old days, it was the newspapers, but read the hype and then get beat the next the next night. Yeah. And that was embarrassing. And I hated losing more than I loved winning. Yes. You know, I'm what you would call a defensive pessimist. There's two types of people in the world. There's 
what's called a strategic optimist, a person that shows up and generally believes it's all going to work out, right? Then there's a defensive pessimist that thinks about all the things that could go wrong. And that causes them to prepare and prepare and prepare. So it doesn't mean you're a negative person. It just means you think through all the scenarios of what could go wrong, which causes you to prepare at a higher level. And Saban is a defensive pessimist. Oh, for sure. Belichick. So Belichick, Belichick. Yeah. And so I'm an optimistic and positive person. A lot of people come to me because I'm intense and I'm positive. You yeah. know, my first three years of being a coach, I was intense and negative. The more negative I, the, the, the more intense I became, the more negative I became. That's been my problem. And we didn't win any championships during that period. Yeah. Okay. So at 25 years old, I'm sitting on my back patio. I'm roommates with the men's basketball coach. We both get beat. We went to high school together. We went to college together. Now I'm the women's coach. He's the men's coach. We both get beat. And and we're sitting on the back patio, man, just commiserating, right? And I looked at him and I said, man, would you enjoy playing for you? Mm. And he said, no. Mm. I, as a matter of fact, I would hate playing for me. And I said, man, I wouldn't get excited about playing for me. And that night, in that moment, I changed, man. And I said, I'm going to be real intense and I'm going to be real positive. And it shifted. When I shifted, the players shifted toward me and they really loved playing for me. I became a player's coach. You know, in the NFL, like 24% of the players said that if they could choose any coach they could play for, they'd play for Pete Carroll. Yeah. Because he seems like a player's coach. Yeah. But then when you ask him, is he easy to play for? They're like, no, man, he's got some of the highest standards of any person you've ever met. So he's not easy to play for, but they love playing for him. Right. And so that's kind of a coach I became from 25 to 31, which is when I really started winning, you know, like seven, 25, 30 win seasons. And then I would get right there to that point, And then I'd get beat by somebody, which was good, which was actually good. Right. Like what happened to Colorado last week is actually a good thing because it shows you it battle tests your players and it really shows you where you need to be to win. I needed to lose the game before getting to a state tournament to see what I really needed to do. Yeah. Entrepreneurs, if you want to grow your business, there is no better investment than your own personal brand. The smartest thing I ever did was start creating content and investing into my brand. Ever since then, we've been able to triple our business. I've been able to raise more money than ever to continue buying more real estate. And it's all because I create content just like this. Now, a lot of people have asked me, Ryan, how am I supposed to do it? I don't know where to start. I don't know who's going to edit it. I don't know even what kind of setup or camera or anything to do. Well, here's the thing. We can help you with all of that at Pineda Media. We have a podcast checklist that you can actually get for free at PinedaMedia.com that's going to go over everything you need on starting a podcast. But to make matters even better, we'll actually edit your podcast for you. We'll repurpose it into short form clips like you see on my Instagram and my TikTok so that people will start seeing those clips and watching your podcast and in turn being customers or investors in your business. So if you want the one-stop solution where you can get everything done for you, plus get the education you need to grow your personal brand, then you need to go to PinedaMedia.com and book a free call with our team. You can also go get that free podcast checklist and that training program absolutely free by just going there. So go check it out. You know, what's funny is so the the reviewer or the um, interviewer on the 60 Minutes asked Dion, they're like, you have two sons who are in college. How would you feel if a coach came in and got rid of them and yeah. you know told them to transfer? He'd, he'd be like, well, son, I mean, you weren't valuable enough. That's right. Like you should be an asset, not a liability to that's the right. team. Like that's on you yes. that, that you got replaced. And I love the attitude. I got a question though. Can, can people be both of those personalities you mentioned? 
Probably. I mean, I mean, my wife is a strategic optimist. She shows up and generally thinks things are going to work out. Um, I would say that's where I lean. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I think just by watching your interviews and and not knowing you personally, but watching your interviews, because I went back and watched a lot of your interviews. You've always had a lot of my good friends on yeah. on, the sh- on your show. And um, and I flew here just to be on your show. That's the only reason I came to Vegas. I appreciate because it. I think what you're doing is impressive. And all of my buddies talk high, you know, highly of you. And uh, but but you do have a cool, calm demeanor about you. That would t- lead me to believe you're a strategic optimist. Yeah. Right. I, I am definitely not a very good preparer. Yeah. But I guess I do think about what can go wrong. That's why I'm thinking through it. I'm like, okay, I don't prepare like a ton, yeah. but I am very fully aware of like yeah. how wrong it can go, yeah. but I just don't think it's going to happen. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's good. Like I said, there's no right or wrong. There's just, that's just kind of how people are wired. You know, yeah. when you coach like I do, you I've coached thousands of people. I mean, over 31 years, I really started coaching at 15 years old. I was a, a boys basketball coach at 18 while I was in college. I was the youngest head coach in Tennessee at 22. Mm. So I was like, like since 15, I've coached thousands of people. Yeah. So you become uh, a studier of human nature. Yeah. Right. And you see trends and patterns and, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. Would you say Belichick and Saban? I mean, to me, they seem like what you described you used to be intense yeah. and uh, yeah. mean, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I did a lot of work with uh, Kevin Elko, who is Saban's psychologist. Pretty fascinating guy. He has 33 national championship rings. He's been the psychologist for like 33 teams. That's won oh, championships. Wow. And he and I did some, you know, we we're on tour together for a while and and it would be so cool because we'd be driving down the road or eating or something and the phone ring and he'd say, Nick's calling. I got to take this call. And it was him and Saban. And, I, and he would put it on speakerphone sometimes. And I would sit there and listen to this conversation between Saban and his coach, right? His psychological coach. And it was fascinating to me because, man, they're just looking for one edge to win, one thing to win. And I, and I just thought that was fascinating. But when I was doing work with him, I would ask him questions about Saban. Like, is he negative? Like, like, yes, he can be negative, but he talks to the players in an affirmative. Like he talks to them in a, in more of an affirmation, like Ryan, I recruited you because you're the best player in the country and I can't sit and watch you play like this. You know, can you play better for us? Cause you're at Alabama and we're the best. Yeah. So they have very strong identity. And if you have kids, I have three children. You know, what I'm really trying to do with my kids is build identity in them. We don't do that in our house. Yes. The birds don't talk like that. We don't judge other people. We don't make excuses. You know, I was raised by a real tough single mother who had me when she was 16 years old, and she conditioned me a lot. A lot of my drive c- comes from her because we don't we don't whine, we don't complain, man, and we don't make excuses. Yeah. I think you you said it before, but that's the main thing I'm trying to – like I've come to realize is that you have to raise your standards. Yes. And somebody – one of my guests, his name is Brandon Carter – he he was like, look, I always say it. You fall to your standards. You don't rise to your yeah. aspirations yeah. or your goals. And I started to think, yeah. and I was like, you're right, dude. You know, the more I think about it, I have these like minimum standards in my life. Right. Like I'm going to look a certain way. I'm right. going to stay in shape. Right. I've never been fat. Right. It's just like, it, it will never happen right. unless something physically happens to me mentally. I will never allow it to happen. That's right. Well, the first thing I do when I take over a sales team or, and in some cases I do what I would call venture coaching, where I go in and, and I may not take a piece of equity of the company, but I do get a pretty big uh, rev share rev share or override on the sales team if yep. I take it over. And especially when I think there's some real upside uh, for me. 
And the first thing I do is raise the standards. See, I really go to work on these four things. Number one, identity. The way they see themselves is not that strong, right? The, what they see when they look in the mirror, they don't, they don't, when I wrote Flip the Switch, I studied the habits of the top 1% of performers, okay? And not the top 1% of money earners because there's 1% of firefighters, there's 1% of police officers, there's 1% of teachers that will never make, that will never be in the top 1% of money earners, but they are the top performers. Yeah. And so what I try to do is instill those habits, those top five habits into that team for identity purposes. Then I go to work on the standards, I always raise them. Never mm-hmm. lower them. Yep. Then I go to work on the language, and there's a certain language I use with the sales vernacular, the systems that I teach on acquisition, things like that. And then I go to work on accountability because where there's no consequence, there's no change of behavior. Right. How do you, I mean, I'm sure you have daily accountability, right? Yes. With sales teams, especially. Yes. My team uh, by 7 p.m. on Sunday night sends me everything they're going to do to hit their goals for the week. We meet morning every day at 9 a.m. They check back in at 1230. They check back in at 430. Yeah. And then we're tracking, you know, everything that they do. I just implemented that across my entire company last week of every department head has a 9 a.m. meeting, just 15 minutes. Yep. Let's all talk about something we're grateful for. Yep. Let's lay some vision, some, you know, praise on people. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, let's get to work. And then we end it with a prayer. Yeah. It's like 15 minutes. Yeah. Well, I think the purpose of the meeting, when I wrote the book, Flip the Switch, Uh, I talk about the prey drive. Prey drive is an instinct in a person to pursue. It's prevalent in an animal. Okay. Okay. I trademark those two words in humans. Prey drive. P-R-E-Y-D-R-I-V-E. Okay. Which is, which is your instinct to pursue. Okay. Like an animal has an instinct to stalk, capture, and kill prey. Mm -hmm. When I heard those two words, I go, boom, humans have a prey drive. It's their instinct to see something and pursue it Mm with. Uh, persistence and intensity, but most people's prey drive has not been activated. Mm. So the purpose of my morning meetings is to reactivate that drive in my team to go into battle again. Got it. One thing, I mean, you were telling me earlier, you you have an event with Andy Elliott, you know, mm-hmm. later this week. And yep. so Andy was here maybe about a month or so ago. Mm-hmm. And every time I see him, I mean, he's come to the office a few times. He's just firing everybody yep. up. I mean, that dude, yep. you don't have to activate his prey drive. That's right. It's going. How, like, why are guys like, I guess him and I and you wired that way to not need people to activate it? It's just always on. It has a lot to do with maybe the conditioning we had early in life. Great people have developed a concept of themselves that typically can't be broken by other people. Yes. And they develop that concept early. I can trace it back to the coaches I had. Because I was raised by a single mom, I grew up on a ball field or in a gym my whole life. I was raised by coaches, right? Mm -hmm. It was coaches who took care of me. I observed from a very early age how people needed coaches in their life to play at a high level. I observed how a good coach could change a person's life. I observed team dynamics. So in me, you take that conditioning with my mom, who really was in a lot of survival mode. She told me, man, you just get up and go get it every day. Andy, Andy, but now it doesn't mean you had to have a, I didn't have a bad background. Andy actually had a, a much rougher background than me growing up. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in life, the switch is flipped and it's like, okay, these people have a big prey drive because they have big goals. Mm. Maybe they've been exposed to people like you and I get a- access to some of the best people in the world that reactivates the prey drive. Mm. You see it. You're right. You see it. You're like, oh man, I want to do that. And I want to do this and I want to do this. And 
because, well, many people never get that exposure. If you are trying to grow your real estate investing business, then you need to join us at Wealthy Investor. You have no idea what Wealthy Investor is. It is our coaching program and community. We have helped thousands of students worldwide grow their business. Now, it doesn't matter if you're just getting started and you're trying to get that first deal. We can help you do that. If you're trying to scale your business and go from a few deals a year to a few deals a month or even seven figures a year, we can help you do that too. In fact, last year alone, we had over 30 students do over a million dollars in revenue. And I'd love for you to be the next one. So it's pretty simple. If you're trying to grow your business and wholesale more homes or flip more homes or buy more rental properties, then you need to go to wealthyinvestor.com and book a free call with our team. It's super simple. We'll go on a strategy call with you and figure out how we can help you grow according to your needs. So All you got to do is go to wealthyinvestor.com, book the free call with the team, and we'll see you there. I mean, this last weekend, I was in Utah at my friend Keaton's event, um, Limitless. And I mean, literally, it was was pretty equivalent to what I would say I first saw you at, which was the 2018 um, 10X GrowthCon. I think it was GrowthCon 2. And there was a lot of people there. I mean, there was... um, you know, Bradley, uh, and I'm just naming people that were at that event and then at this event. So, I mean, I remember seeing Bradley for the first time. Now we're buds. Tim Grover, who we mentioned, yep. um, Ed Milet, yep. who's now a bud, and he's speaking at my next event. Yep. Um, oh, man, I'm trying to remember. There's a bunch, right? Yep. Ty Lopez. So, a bunch of guys were at that event, and then I'm here with them at this event. And for me, I remember back in 2018 going to that first, that was my first ever business conference. And I was a successful entrepreneur. I'd flipped hundreds of homes, but nobody knew who I was. I had just actually retired from pro baseball. Right. And I remember looking at everyone on stage and not in like a prideful way or in a, you know, these guys, you know, I'm better than these guys kind of way. But I was like, I will be on that stage one day. Yes. Like it's just going to happen. Like I have the ability and the talent to do it. I don't know how or when or what it will look like, but it will happen. And then I just remember... I remembered it at this event a couple of days ago. I was like, wow, like this was the culmination of that, you know, five years later. But then it did something in me that was not what I expected. I was like, okay, I did that. Now what? Yeah. And, you know, you see how far these guys have come in five years and, you know, some have fallen, some have gotten better, some are the same. Right. And I'm like, all right, how do I become top dog? You know, at the end of the day, that's where my mind goes. Well, that when I when I broke down in the book the the activators of prey drive. So think about it: this everybody has a prey drive in them. I, this is what I'm suggesting in this book. Right? There are phases of that. It has to be activated every day. There must be a persistence to it. There must be an intensity to it. Those are phases of the drive. And when I say that to people, they're like, "Oh man, I, don't, I just don't activate it every day," or they say, "I don't have a persistence with it," or "I lack an intensity with it." Right? Uh, but there are activators of that drive. Fear can be an activator of that drive. Fear of loss. Mm. That's why I practice a term called mental subtraction. I take things that I love and I say, what if I don't hit my numbers and I got to give that up? What if I got to give this up? What mm. if I got what, what if I have to give that up? What if I go to, go to my wife and tell her I'm going to give that up? Right? Because I didn't do my job or I didn't do it. So fear is actually a big prey drive activator for me. Fear of losing something. Okay. okay. So mental subtraction is you trick the brain. You tell the brain, you know, if you start getting lazy, you say, well, what if I have to give this up? And I don't want to give this up. Okay. So it activates you to go get it. Right. Does, does that cause anxiety or anything in you? 
like having to, to utilize fear in that No, way. I've had a lot of coaching. I've had a lot of people coach me, really some of the best people in the world and had to, to stay in physical creation versus mental creation. There was a time in my life I practiced a lot of fantasizing and catastrophizing, which would be where I could see it with vivid visualization in my mind. And then when it was, wouldn't go as fast as I wanted it to, I would quickly go to negative town, mm. right? And so I had a coach for about six months who worked with me on tools on how to live, how to go from mental creation to physical action, even if it's just one step toward that goal Got it. and live there. So, so, but it can create anxiety in some people, right? Yeah. But, but there's good anxiety. Like you were an athlete, you stress. Yeah. We look forward to a game, man. Yeah. Could we win? Could we lose? How do we play? Uh, you know, I mean, especially as a baseball player, you know, getting up to hit, there's good, there's good anxiety, right? You're looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. um, competition is an activator of prey drive. So yeah. you may get around those guys and go, you know what, man, I want to get to that level. I'm going to, I want to, and I'm in competition with a lot of people who don't even know I'm in competition. <laughs> there you go. It's like when I roll flip the switch, my agent was like, you know, man, there's a lot of good books coming out. I'm like, good. <laughs> may the best man win, right? Exactly. What I love about Grover too, because Grover and I are really good friends and we talk a lot, is I love when he and I speak at the same event because mm -hmm. we're competitors, right? <laughs> and we're like, come okay, on, there's man. the two coaches. Like, who's All right, gonna, who's, who's gonna going it? to perform? And it's not like we're competing against each other. Yeah. But he brings out the prey drive in me. And 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 I like that. Elliot brings out the prey drive in me. Mm -hmm. Andy and I have become good friends. Mm -hmm. And uh you, you know, so his intensity bring, I, I'm very different. He's like, you're very different than me. You package concepts different than me, but we're, we're still competitors. Yeah. You both are very intense in different yep. ways. I That's mean, right. you're, you're more, in, you're intense in the same way that I'm intense Yeah, is that we are very strategically intense. Yep. I would say, whereas Andy yep. and not that Andy's not strategic. Yep. He's just more like, yo, I'm going to yep. show you with emotion yep. and I'm going to fire yep. you up and what I say doesn't even really matter. <laughs> you know, right. like what Andy says, right. he could tell you literally right. to jump off a bridge and you'd be like, all right, dude, That's right. I'm ready. And his people skills are incredible. Yeah. And I, I don't think a lot of people get to see that. They see clips of him on social, but his people skills and his connection skills. See, one of the habits of the top 1% is connection. Yeah. Milet has that. Grover has it. Uh, Andy Elliott has it. All the great people that you, we hang around are great at connection. Yeah. They're great at connection to people. And a lot of people don't see that. Bradley, yeah. Bradley's great at connection to people. Mm -hmm. So, so when you, when you think about that, they don't see that they see in your face. Cause people say, man, you're doing all this stuff with Andy Ellen. He's so intense. And I don't know. Well, I'm like, man, the dude is, and he's really skilled. He's a very skilled person. When I, when I did an event with him at my lodge in Tennessee, it took me back to when I was first doing events with Cardone. And I'm like, man, because I, I always recognize how skilled Cardone was. Yeah. Because in those days, it was more sales training and coaching. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, Elliot is that skilled. Yeah. He's very skilled. Well, let me edify what you're saying with the people you mentioned. Because, for instance, Bradley, um, you know, I just saw him a couple of days ago with Andy together. Yep. And um, Brad, anytime I ask him for anything, yeah. like he'll give you the shirt off his back. He, he'll hit me up for random things. He hit me up literally last week while I was on the golf course. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, dude, I'm golfing. He's like, we're both speaking at this event in Dallas next or in two weeks. Um, I got a jet. You want to go? Yep. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> you know, like we're there. Yep. Andy, you know, he was here a couple, uh, couple of weeks ago. He goes, hey, I know you're working on your sales team. When you're ready, let me know. I'll fly down here and I'll train him for a few hours. Yeah. 
like yeah. no charge, not like yeah. he's just like, bro, whatever you want. Yep. I'm there. Um, Ed Milet, same thing, you know, Ed and I recently became friends and, you know, he's speaking at WealthCon, mm -hmm. which I'm excited about, but now Ed will like literally text me out of the blue yeah. every week yep. about something. Yep. And it like, he'll, he'll send me one of my own videos. He'll be like, dude, I love that reel that you just did, man. Like yeah. that was really good. And, and, you know, all of these guys, so it all goes back to one of those, one of those habits of the top 1% is, which is connection. Mm -hmm. They treat the top 1% of people treat everybody like family. They, 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 they really do care for people and they really do like people and they really try to help people. And all of those guys have done that. And I actually said that about a year ago when I really started to get to know Cardone, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people, obviously Cardone would be the biggest example of like, yeah. um, maybe being misperceived. Mm -hmm. And I said, no, dude, like I can, I promise you, like, I'm a pretty good judge of yeah. character and like intentions behind how, because I can spot fake people mm -hmm. and I'm like, all right, dude, like yep. you're, you're not authentic. Like what's the hidden right. motive here? But with Grant, I mean, just talking to him behind the scenes, I don't want to say he's a different person, but you can see like, he truly does just want to help people. Yeah. You know, he's like, dude, like, let's do this. Let's do that. Right. Like, it's not about the money. The money will happen. It's just. Right. The intent is there to help people. Well, him putting me on stage in 2018 where, where you saw me changed my whole life. I mean, I was relatively unknown. You got to remember, I was a high school basketball coach. Super famous. And, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you're not get, Gino or Ariana. Yeah, I'm not, I wasn't Gino. I was known in Tennessee like as this yeah. great coach, but I, but I wasn't known. And um, that, that changed everything for me because then it opened me up to an international audience. We signed on more clients and customers in, an, in a one-hour period than I had in my entire coaching career. Wow. Then, I mean, I still get speaking and get, I still get deals from this today. People say, man, I saw you at 10X. I mean, that's literally how we met. Um, I yeah. think Dan Martell introed us. Yeah. I was like, dude, I remember seeing you speak at 10X. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I went from being unknown to known very quickly because of that one event. That shows you the power of that event. Yeah. So- how did you and Granny, like, why were you even on that stage as an unknown guy? When I, when I was in around, I think it was 2012, 2013, I had a radio show on Fox Business. I was trying, I was always interviewing successful people, mm -hmm. Marcus Lamonas, Nito Cobain, really cool people. And I was in an airport walking through Chicago, going somewhere, and I saw 10X, 10X, and I didn't know who he was at that time. And I saw, man, this is a cool concept. And remember, I'm always looking for somebody to interview. Yeah. And so I went, I, I opened up the thing, and I was like, man. Dude looks good. He's got great hair like you. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, you know, I'm going to call his office and just interview him. So I called his office, had him on the show. And when I was finished, he's like, man, you're really good. He's like, you pay attention. You're, you, you ask better questions. And he said, you and I should be doing things together. Mm. And I go, okay. And so this was around the time that we started talking, what could we do together? He endorsed my book, Zebras and Cheetahs, which was my very first major published book. And he had a show called The Cardone Zone yep. back in those days where he literally did radio every day. It's still the same name. And it was crazy because he would text me like five minutes before or during the show, hey, I want you on right now. <laughs> it was like, oh, I'm like, man, I'm going to speak in the case. <laughs> like, I, like, I can't just stop right in the middle and be on the show. But but I was on there as a regular guest, pretty regular. Got it. And um, we started knowing each other. And, and then he said, I'm doing this event at Riviera Maya called 10X, mm. which is where I met Brad Lee. That was the first growth con. That was, it was like the first, it was like a 10 X like event shop kind of. Yes. 75 okay. people. Got it. It was such a, what cool, year was this? I want to say, man, 2015, maybe. Okay. It was so cool. 
Ryan, because because for three hours we would do this workshop with 75 people with Cardone. Then we all went straight to the pool. Yeah. And we all hung out together for three or four more hours. Mm. Then we all went to dinner together. Yeah. I was like, man, that was cool. Let me hold on though. Let me plug this before I forget. Yeah. (laughs) We are having our version of that in Cancun. Yep. Um, November 30th to December 4th. And so um, I don't know what the link is, so we'll drop it down below. And there's yeah. like you, like you just said, there's very limited seating. Yes. Um, we only have so many room blocks. And so I don't know how many are going to be available by the time yep. this podcast launches, but get your sit, uh, your tickets. It's yeah. actually very affordable. Um, if you're a student in our programs, it's 1500 bucks for, wow. you know, the ticket for four days, four nights. Yeah. Um, and then if you're not a student, you can pay 3000 to come on yeah. the trip. And then, um, you know, you just got to, pay your way there, pay for the hotel. And the cool thing about the hotel is all inclusive. So for the four nights, I think it's less than $2,000 wow. for the hotel. Yep. And like that's food, drinks, stay, amenities, everything. So it's, it's really cool. That's a great deal. Yeah. And what people need to understand is in 2015, me having proximity to Cardone like that, to have conversation. I remember asking him like, man, where do you find all these crazy people at that work for you? Like, where do you, what's your recruiting? He's like, man, I don't have a strategy. I just, I'm me. And they are attracted to what we're doing. Would you say he sim- he was similar back then to where Andy is like right now? Yes. Very similar. That's yes. what I think too. Yes. And he had these rabid team members that I loved and this culture that I loved. And, and I remember saying, man, I'm going to go back to Nashville and dominate. And he looked at me and I'll never forget this. He said, man, quit, quit talking about Nashville. Yeah. Go back and talk about planet earth. Mm. your market is planet earth. Go back and figure out how to sell your coaching services to everybody on the planet. And, you know, at that time we weren't live streaming like we do today. I, I wasn't doing big virtual events like I do today. Yeah. Right. And that it's, so that's why people need to go to Mexico with you to have close proximity because one word from a person could change everything for you. Yeah. And that event did that. So fast forward a few years, he does 10 X one. I paid to go. To the conference. Yeah. Sat in the back. So, man, I know I can do I know I can be up there. And we were in his office the next year. And I just said, man, do you think I'm good enough to speak at, t- at 10X too? And he said, yeah, of course. And I said, well, haven't, why haven't you asked me? <laughs> and sales, I mean, it's like this. guy. It's like me and him in his office by, by himself. And he's like, oh, you know, I spent, I spent you know, four, $4 million get Mandalay Bay. And you're not famous enough yet. I need people with a lot of followers. Yeah. So, man, I totally understand. I said, well, we were friends. We've been friends over the last couple of years, I said, um, how much are the VIP tickets? And he said, 2000. I said, I'll take a hundred thousand dollars worth of VIP tickets. Mm. And I said, I, I want to help you sell tickets. Yeah. Cause that's what friends do for each other. Yeah. I said, I'm not asking, I'm not paying to speak. I yeah. want to be clear. I'm not giving you money so I can speak on stage. Yeah. Although that's not a bad strategy for people. I said, I'll take 50 VIP tickets right now. Mm. At two thousand a ticket. Yep. I took those back, and I and I had all these coaching students, and I said, "Who wants to go to Vegas with me, and experience this?" And I, I'm gonna have a party at the top of Mandalay Bay. I'm pretty sure I got Ed Milet to come. Uh, I don't think Grover came, but but a couple other people like that were known came, and I so I rented out the top of Mandalay Bay or like whatever their room is up there. Yeah. And I took my 50 people and I resold those tickets for 5,000 a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, so I so bought them for profit. two. I sold them for five. 
And I, you got to speak on stage. And I got to speak on stage. That was a good deal. And, and uh, it was a great deal, man. But it was like, that is a prey drive moment, man. It's like yeah. me and him. I'm like, I'm going for it, man. Yeah. I got nothing to lose. You know, what's funny is I, um, so up to this point, we, we throw a thousand plus person event every quarter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've, I've had many mm -hmm. of the people we're talking about on stage. And, um, this event is the first time I've ever paid somebody. It's Ed. Yes. And, you know, Ed's a tough guy to get, you yes. know, he's in demand. And so I was like, you know what, let's do it. Yes. And so, you know, it was a six figure thing. Yep. And I go similar to you, I go, yep. all right, you know, I don't know how many more tickets we'll sell with him. I mean, we'll find right. out like we've never tried, but either way we're going to sell. Yes. Okay. But let's create this new ticket where, you know, we'll call it a diamond ticket yes. and we'll charge, you know, 10,000 plus for it. And, you know, they'll do dinner with me and Ed, they'll get backstage access and yep. all this stuff. And I go, if we sell, you know, just 10 of them, like it'll be pretty much like he was free. hundred percent. And, um, we sold 10 really fast. Yep. And I was like, oh crap, we kind of underpriced it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah. um, we made a little more room, sold some at 15 and, yeah. you know, it was just like, all right, well, there we go. Well, I would say out of all the people that speak, Ed is at the peak of, of the speakers who are out there. Yeah. In my opinion. Mm -hmm. and, and he's got that, the, the, a, he's got so much knowledge, but he's really got, cause I've seen him do the power of one more in multiple settings where maybe I was speaking at a conference and he was speaking at it as well. And it's just dialed in, man. Yeah. It is really dialed in. It's emotional. It touches people's hearts. It touches people's spirits. Yeah. I think a good talk touches all four parts of a person's nature. Yeah. There's a, there's a skill component for the body. There's mental component for the mind. There's an emotional component for the heart. There's yeah. a spiritual component for the spirit. Mm. Well, what I'll tell you too is, I mean, take the event out of it, right? Like, you know, we were able to add this new ticket tier, which people are super hyped about. And, you know, so now Ed's there, but the better part of it was, you know, I got to go to Ed's house. We filmed the podcast. Yep. We became buddies there. And that's when we started building our relationship. And so now, like I said, I mean, he'll text me every week yep. about something and he's like, bro, you know, I love what you're doing for the kingdom. Yep. He's like, any way I can support you, I'm in. Yep. And, you know, like by the time this podcast launches, we'll have already finished WealthCon with mm -hmm. him. So maybe I'll insert if this actually happened or not. But he texted me yesterday and or not yesterday, but a couple of days ago. He goes, hey, you know, there's 50 50 chance I could bring so and so on the podcast. You guys can bleep this out. Yep. Okay. He's like, I think is going to come um, with me to WealthCon. Is that okay? Wow. And I'm like, yeah, that's okay. Yeah. You know, like no big deal. You can, you can bring him man. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, he's like, yeah, he, he might say a few words. I'm like, all right, well, nice. Let's freaking have a party, man. Absolutely. So we'll see if it happens. If it does, I mean, you know, well, he's, we, we won't bleep this out. Well, he's always been great. He's always been great to me. And, and when I met him at, at, uh, 10 X, He's always will get back to me if I message him, right? I, actually, I sent him your podcast with him. Oh, okay. I was in somewhere speaking a few weeks ago, and I was working out, and I was listening to your podcast with Ed, and I texted him, and I said, "Man, this is one of the best ones I've seen you do." You know, because you you because he always is interviewing somebody else. Yeah, you don't get in his mind a lot. Mm -hmm. And there was something he said in there that I loved. He said, "There's different types of speakers. There's aspirational that make you think bigger." There's motivational, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and, yeah. He, and and he, he kind of went through these three types and I go, man, that's a good way of saying it. So I just text him and said, man, it was a great interview with you and Ryan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And he endorsed my book, you know, and, uh, 
And he's always been good to me anytime I've asked for anything. Yeah. No, I think it's crazy that, you know, just like your story with Cardone by getting creative and like putting your money where your mouth is. Because yeah. a lot of people don't get that, right? Yep. Like, I've been fortunate enough to meet a lot of big people without necessarily having to like go pay them directly. Yep. Um, because I have other things to offer, right? And so, yep. you know, I've been able to do that. But, you know, I, I've realized, hey, to reach the next level, it's like, all right, you know, pay him, pay him, pay him. And like, let's put my money where my mouth is to show yep. like I'm serious about, right. you know, being intentional. And that was what you did with Grant. And look what it did. Well, I remember when Maxwell, when John Maxwell did 33,000 certified coaches, they did 350 million in certified coaches. Wow. And I'm like, all right, I want to know who the mastermind was behind that. <laughs> and it was Paul Martinelli. And so one day I'm like driving down the road. I'm like, man, I'm calling Paul Martinelli. So I call his office. I'm like, how much is, how much does it cost to spend time with Paul Martinelli? And she was like 2,200 bucks for 90 minutes. And I'm like, what? <laughs> That's, That's it? $2,200? I'm like, book it. Yeah, let's well, go. How, let many, how many 90 minute slots can I get? <laughs> this, and this is good for the, for the person watching this. Because he didn't know me. Yep. And I didn't know him. But the fact that I paid caused him to go look at my videos. Mm -hmm. We get on the phone and he goes, man, you're really good. He said, we should start talking about a partnership mm -hmm. with you and Maxwell. And and see, by paying the money, forced him to like do a little homework. Who is this Coach Burr guy, right? Yeah, yeah. So I get on the call and the call goes, and within the first 10 minutes, he tells me, this is exactly what we did to do this much money. Like literally within 10 minutes, step one, step two, step three. I thought this is crazy. And then, and then it shifted to, okay, how can we partner and do something? So everybody watching this, that's, that's afraid to invest in themselves. You know, a, a formula I use that I got from Sullivan is you don't start with courage. People wait for courage to come before they make a decision. And the word decide means to kill something off. The mm. word decision means to cut something away. So people wait for courage to come, but that's not how the formula works. The courage doesn't come. So I tell people it ain't coming. What comes first is a commitment. Mm. After you commit, then the courage comes and you're going to need the courage to kind of fight through that uncertainty. Yeah. Then you're going to learn a new capability. You're going to learn a new skill. Yep. Right. Yep. Once you have the new skill, you're now going to have a new confidence. Mm. Okay. And Sullivan called that the four C's. And so when people are struggling to make a decision, I go, man, it seems like you want to do this, but you're stuck on this one thing. Am I right about that? And I said, you're waiting on the courage to come, aren't you? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, it ain't coming. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't coming. What comes first is you committing to something. Yeah. That's called psychological demand. And it, you, once you commit to something, it's like when you pay, you pay attention. Yeah. One thing I always say is for me as a Christian, I talk about faith a lot. Mm -hmm. And in order to be great in business or anything, I mean, you got to have a tremendous amount of faith yes. in, you know, for me, it's, it's having a foundation in Jesus, but mm -hmm. you know, even if you're going to do something big, you better believe that you're going to do it right. Yeah. You can call it courage. You can call it right. faith, but you have to go into it because you're, you're trying to achieve something you've never done before. Mm -hmm. That's the definition of faith. It's, right. it's believing in what's unseen. Right. And so yeah. for so many people, they just, they, they've never built this muscle of faith. And right. so they don't ever step out. Yeah. Well, I grew up, you know, in the Bible belt, right yep. in the middle of Tennessee. So I grew up in Church of Christ. Mm -hmm. I grew up where they sing the same songs. You sit in the same seat. If you miss church on Sunday, the, the, the preacher knew it. <laughs> he walked around and shook every hand. Yeah. He's like, I missed you last week. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And what was funny is I went to Church of Christ in the morning, and then I had a girlfriend that was Baptist, so I went to Baptist on Sunday night. <laughs> so I went to Church of Christ in the morning, then went to Baptist on Sunday night because the Baptists had, they had an incredible youth program. Yeah. And so, you know, but but they had music too. Yeah. And we didn't have that in the Church of Christ. <laughs> so it's like, oh, what's going on over here, man? They play music and, you know, it was a totally different deal. Yeah. But but I've always been deeply grounded in my faith. Yeah. And when I studied Covey from 18 to 25, he was always whole person theory, body, mind, heart, and spirit. Mm -hmm. You go to work on all four parts of your nature. Each part produces different dimensions, different intelligences, different capacities. Yeah. So even if you take a salesperson, a lot of people teach sales training, but that's only really one component of their nature. Mm -hmm. It'd be like in baseball, you just learning how to hit, but them never working on you emotionally, mentally right? Your yep. belief, your confidence. Yep. So there's other parts of your nature that need to be worked on. Yes. Because you can have skill, but maybe be low on confidence. Mm -hmm. Or you could have a lot of confidence, be low on skill. Yep. Or you may lack knowledge on how to put something together. So I go to work on knowledge, skill, desire, and confidence. So my differentiator versus a lot of the people is I'm a real coach. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people see when they see me speak. They're like, man, that dude's a real coach. Yeah. He's not just a business guy. Yeah. So- I, I heard Patrick Ben David say this one time where he was just kind of like giving the tears of athletes. And he was like, okay, on one hand, you have people who are not very skilled, you know, and talented, but they're, they're just overachievers, their mental game, their, their confidence, everything like they outperform their talent. And he's mm -hmm. like, Muggsy Bogues, good example in the NBA. Right. Mm -hmm. And he's like, then you have guys who are extremely talented but maybe they're not the hardest workers. They could have been more a guy like Shaq, mm -hmm. you know, Shaq was always struggling with his weight, you know, kind of would get lackadaisical. And mm -hmm. then sometimes he'd just be dominant. And then you have guys like Jordan and LeBron who had it all. They're just, yeah. yo, physically, skillfully better than everyone, but their work ethic, their confidence, everything was just better than everyone too. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what you're saying. It's like, you're born with whatever skill you have, right? You look the way you look, you right. speak the way you speak. You know, sports are way more cutthroat than business. It's like any, you don't need any physical talent to be great in business. Right. You don't need the highest IQ. You don't need anything. Like I truly believe anyone can become a millionaire and anyone right. can become, you know, even, uh, I don't want to say anyone can become a billionaire, but like, I don't think you need special skills. You just need like determination and like right. resourcefulness to do it. Right. Well, I think I think that's why prey drive is so important is because if you have that drive, you can compensate for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. There, there's a there's a lot of people that may lack in knowledge or skill, but they make up for it in effort in the business world. Right. Like really, if it's a, a statistical game of sales, there is skill involved. Yep. Right. How you initiate, how you uh, connect with people, how you locate their ambition, how you explain your value. Yep. How you invite them to an action, how you qualify their commitment. These are all skills, but, but it is still a statistical problem, game of probability. And yeah. if you study the law of diffusion it says for every person you present an idea to only 2.5% of people are going to take it the first time. Yeah. Right. Then it moves to 13.5% of people need to see it one to three times. Mm -hmm. Then it moves to 34% need to see it three to seven times. 34% need to see seven to 15 times. And then 16% of people are never, never going to take action. Yeah. You know, it's funny as I tell our sales guys this all the time, because we're training all these new SDRs mm -hmm. and they're not skilled, right? Yep. That's why you're an SDR. And, you know, if you were more skilled, you'd be a closer or mm -hmm. whatever else, right? I go, but here's the thing, okay? 
everybody starts low skill. I mean, that's just how it is. You don't know sales. You're, you're getting into it, right? The only way you can compete if, if you have low skill is just doing higher volume than everyone else, right? right? Back to the numbers game. Like if I'm a one skill, but I put out 10 volume, the result will, you know, be one times 10. I'm gonna get 10, 10 X, right? But the cool thing that happens with volume is your skill actually gets better. Yes. The more reps you get, the better your skill gets. So now you've developed this capacity to work really hard. Right. And now maybe your skill becomes a two and a three and a four. And now your production, because your volume is the same, is killing it. And I go, you know, you guys who are just getting started, you can't look at how hard the closers are working. I mean, if these guys have level 10 skill. That's right that they can work half as much as you and still just destroy you. Yeah. Well, and I think, I think Bradley would tell you what's missing in most companies is they don't have content. They don't have, they don't have a structure, a selling system. Mm -hmm. They don't have repetition. They don't have role play and they don't have any testing. So when I go into a company, I'm like, okay, show me what you do to train your people. Right. Military trains every day. World-class athletes train every day. Yes. Business people don't train every day. And so I think that's a huge missing structure for people. I'm glad you said that because I just implemented in our sales team, you know, one of our core values is train daily. So Mm -hmm. our core values are all um, sports related. Mm -hmm. So number one, serve others. Number two, play fair. Number three, train daily. Number four, no ego. And with train daily, that's the one of my pet peeves is like, hey guys, like, what are you doing outside of work yeah. to train? Yeah. Like sales team, work hours aren't your training hours. Right. Get in here at 8.30 at a minimum That's right. and start training right now before yeah. the day starts. Yeah. Do I go practice? You know, do I do batting practice in the game? Right. You know, do I, am I out there trying to take ground balls and work on my throwing motion and everything during the game? Right. No, it's game time. Yeah. I do that like hours and hours before the game yeah. and the off season. Well, and I think that goes, you know, I define coaching as engaging people in a set of systematic behaviors that allows them to do something tomorrow they cannot do today. Mm. But what are you coaching them on? So I quickly figured out when I went into a company, they didn't have a selling system. I'm not talking about what you say to get in when you get in front of a, a, a prospect. I'm talking about how do you generate leads? How do you work people through a cycle? And so this was foreign to me because as a basketball coach, I would watch the competition for three and a half hours just to play and practice, right? I'd sit there for an hour's film, break it down. This is exactly how we can win. Then we had a a sheet, a play sheet of plays, right? If they do this, we do this. Very similar to football. Mm -hmm. If they play this defense, we run this. And we would run through those plays. They were already scripted, by the way, Mm -hmm. before the game. Yep. Then we would chart the plays, and I would go in at halftime, I'd say, okay, what worked? And I'd say, well, one, three, and five worked 80% of the time. Two, four, and six worked 20. And I'd say, throw those out. And we would only go back to the plays that worked. And we would run those plays until the other team stopped them, right? Now, mm-hmm. let's translate that to the business world. If we went to the sales department and we said, okay, how many strategies are we using to generate leads? And they said, two. Are we generating enough leads? No. Okay. We need more strategies, right? And you should know what your top Number one strategy is what your top number two, what your three. And I think you need, I mean, in today's world, you could be using 12, 15, 20 different strategies to generate leads. Would you, but I mean, like when you're talking about lead generation, when you say it's the marketing department, it, it could be. So I think of it like this it is marketing and advertising, mm-hmm. right? And it's hand to hand combat. Mm-hmm. For many years, a lot of the way I generated business was from relationship selling. Yeah. 
I met you. You introduced me to this group. I spoke at this conference. I got a new card on. I got in front of 10,000 potential people. I took a meeting with 10,000 people in an hour. Mm-hmm. That's the way I look at it. Now, today's where we do uh, virtual events, webinars, right? Podcast. But there's still a, a system that when you come into this, in my system, we start with suspects. Then we move to prospects. Yeah. Then we move them to the farm club. Then we move them to the red zone. Then we move them to net promoters. Yeah. And I've got all this vernacular on how we move people through a system and cycle. The reason that's important is because the sales team has a language. See, I can sit in the meeting and go, who's in the red zone today? And you say, man, I got these five people in the red zone. And that's a common language that we use. Got it. No I different mean, than sports language. Yeah. Right. No, Locker room language. Yeah. Everybody has to be on the same page for sure. So what would you say, you know, coaching high level athletes and, you know, business people, in my opinion, it becomes harder to coach more successful people, right? Because I mean, by default, they have less holes in their game. They're less obvious because you were just saying to you, it reminded me with Nick Saban Mm -hmm. where he's just looking for like one little thing that can like get Nick an extra edge. And then, you know, you have other athletes who they've accomplished so much that maybe they don't respect you because they're at the top of your game. And how do you deal with that? Well, it's interesting. There, there, there is not a correlation between a person making $25 million a year still could have some missing structures. Yeah. Right. And I remember speaking at a conference in Nashville for 20 minutes. And when I was finished, these two guys just ran to me. These guys were making about 300000 a month, $3.6 million a year personally. Yeah. And they both said the same thing. Man, I lost my prey drive. And I need you to help me get it back. I coach a lot of successful people. They got complacent. They got complacent, which is a gradual settling to a place of mediocrity. We become complacent because satisfied needs never motivate, only unsatisfied needs. Hmm. So these guys came to me and like, man, I lost my prey drive. I need you to be my coach, right? So I still coach a lot of successful people who come to me for one or two reasons. I'm really a, a specialist at packaging, packaging a concept for monetization, like helping people find their X factor package the X factor, market the X factor, monetize the X factor. Okay. And that's just a gift I picked up from, from, from 18 to 30 studying Covey and and really learning how to package concepts for monetization purposes. So people come to me and say, I've been real successful and I want to package my intellectual property and sell it. Mm -hmm. And you've written all these books and you got all these programs and now you're doing these real estate plays. They're our form of packaging. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, okay. And so I've developed programs to do that. Right. And then the other thing they say is, man, I lost my prey drive or my team has lost their prey drive. And I want you to come in and reactivate that drive. And you're a specialist at that. So those are the two kinds of people that come to me. So if a person's making, you know, because I've worked with people that make a lot of money. Right. I haven't coached any billionaires, but I've worked with billionaires on their companies on like, you know, I know what you do this. So but but the first guy I coached was worth probably it's probably worth 350 million today. Uh, hired me to coach his team back in those days, but he, his life was a wreck. I mean, very successful business-wise, totally out in la-la land everywhere else, right? (laughs) So, so I tried to bring structure and discipline to him that he didn't have. Yeah. And so I don't look at it like, well, this person makes more money than me. Therefore, I'm not qualified to coach them. Yeah. yeah. I look at more the skill set. And this is something I was going to say earlier about all the guys we both work with now. One thing they all recognize is when you have a hard primary skill, it's like, well, that dude's really good at that. Call him for that. Mm. Right. 
Call, call him for that. Do this. That, that what what skill recognizes is other skilled people. Yes, and and they respect that. It's like it's like they can sniff out. Okay, man, that dude's good at what he does, right? And I think everybody's kind of the best at what they do. Mm-hmm. If you look at Grover, he's the best at breaking down winning and talking about that from that perspective, right? Mm-hmm. If you look at Milet, he's the best at at getting you to think about that power one more, or max out, or Cardone getting you to think bigger, or all of these guys are great at something. Mm-hmm. You know. It takes a lot of time to build that skill and to, to realize what that is for you. I mean, most people listening to this are not world class yet. Yeah. Right. So how do you how do you pick a skill that you know you're going to be try to well try to yeah. be known for? You know, it's interesting because I'm writing a new book right now that's that we're shopping to the publishers. And, Bro, you uh, don't stop, man. I don't stop. I just write one and I go to the next. What's one. What's the record for most books written? <laughs> well, there's there's some how people's many, written. How many is John Maxwell written? He's written a bunch, like eighty or ninety. Okay, so, so I got, got I got some ways to go. <laughs> but the concept of the new book is called "Screw Your Why." I was going to say, you said, screw your wife. A lot of people think that because of my Southern accent. <laughs> and you can do that too. Uh, um, but but chapter three of Flip the Switch, and I've been saying this for a while in my speaking engagements, a lot of people believe you got to, you have to find your why to do something big. And okay. it's it's a it's a phrase that caught. Simon Sinek wrote the book, Start With Why, Find Your Why. I think it's a genius concept. But I actually believe you can know your purpose and still not be motivated. Hmm. I, I, what Could you know your purpose and be broke? Could you know your talent and and not know how to package that talent? Mm-hmm. Could you not know how to market the talent? Could you not, could you wake up and go, man, I don't know I'm supposed to coach people, but man, I've been coaching people for 31 years. I don't feel like coaching people today. Or you may say I'm supposed to be doing this, but I don't feel like doing that today. So the concept of the book is don't find your purpose, find your skill. Okay. Then find the problem you are most qualified to solve. That is highly enjoyable and could be highly profitable. So the subtitles like find your skill, then find your problem, and then watch your purpose find you. Mm. Okay, because I think purpose is exchange. Yeah, I exchange think- of talent for for your problem. Like if you have an ambition, you you may say I have this big ambition and I need to go get the most skilled person who can help me with this ambition. Yeah, and then when they use their talent to help you with your ambition, you go back and you say thank you, man. I owe you. Yeah, that is an exchange of purpose. Yeah, for me. I, I've kind of thought about your why in different ways. I mean, obviously, like my why has changed over the years, right? Yeah. Like it starts off as, yeah, dude, you know, I'm just trying to make some money and provide right. for myself and my family. And then you do that and you're like, all right, well, now let's do something for my parents. And you do that yeah. um, and those around you and your employees. And then you know, you're like, man, okay, now what? And then it becomes, okay, it's yeah. got to be something really big now. And for me, obviously I come from faith. So everything is a little bit different than maybe others and and how they try and find their why. But at this point, it's become very crystal clear to me that, you know, my mission is to go help bring entrepreneurs to Jesus. Okay. And, you know, not only just non-believers, but help believers as well, Right. you know, grow in the faith because they're going to be the leaders in their companies and, you know, everything else. And that wasn't clear to me even last year. Right. You know, it's like, I'm 34 now and yeah. Um, that's what it just happens to be at this very moment. And who knows when I'm 50, I don't know. Right. Like yeah. maybe it will be still, I don't know, but it definitely is motivating for sure yeah. when, yeah. when that becomes the purpose. But here's what I kind of tell people, especially those who are trying to like, um, develop that skill first mm-hmm. to your point, right. They don't have a skill. 
you're like, look, I need to figure out a skill that can provide and right. everything else. And so for me, I've taught thousands of people how to invest in real estate. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, house flipping, wholesaling, those can be that skill. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing, guys, it gets really hard. Like yeah. it's not easy money. It's right. definitely hard work to yep. do this. And when the times are tough, if your why isn't strong enough, yep. you will quit. Like you got to have a a deep reason for wanting to do this beyond yep. just like wanting to be a millionaire, making yep. money. Like I've never seen anyone want to be a millionaire. And like that was a deep enough reason to get through all the hard crap you got to go through. Yeah. So, so I agree with you. If you're a person of faith, the ultimate, the ultimate why is to right make disciples of right. all nations. Yep. Uh, yes. And advance the kingdom. That mm-hmm. should be, that's it. That is, that that's is, big, that, I mean, <laughs> there, there isn't, there really is no, uh, you know, like back and forth on what it should be. Like, yeah. that's pretty clear. Yeah. Use your uh, talents to serve the kingdom. But I also think instead of find your why, I like because goals. Okay. Because goals are big reasons you do things when you don't feel like it. I do this because of this. I do this because it gives me purpose. I do this because I want to be the best in the world. I do this because, man, somebody helped me when I needed somebody to help me, right? So a because goal is a big reason you do something when other people, when you may not feel like doing it. So it's, it's different than finding your why. Yeah. Well, like when I was at that event in Utah, like I was saying earlier, where, you know, I saw these guys speak. Mm-hmm. That was a because goal, I feel like, because I was like, you know what? Yeah. I just got to be the top dog. Yeah. For no other reason than just because. Because. Just, there's, there's no, there's no purpose behind it. Yeah. Because you want to. Yeah. So, so think about this. I was at one time in my career and I have three beautiful kids. I have an 11 year old daughter and I have a, a one year old daughter. And that's, you know, when you're 47, I'm 47. Having a one-year-old at 47 is a, is a new game. And then we yeah. have a three-year-old son. And you I was started I, late. I, well, I did get started late because I was married to winning, you know, from 20 to 30. I didn't <laughs> even date anybody. I was like just trying to win championships. Yeah. So I had no free time to do anything. Um. So I didn't get married till I was late. We started having kids late. But I, I used to say, man, I did this for my wife and I'm doing it for my kids, which is the politically correct thing to say. Mm-hmm. And I got home one night and my wife, uh, Natalie, said, you know, I saw one of those videos where you said you were doing this for us. And she said, you don't do this for us. <laughs> she said, she said, there's something inside of you that coaching people feeds. Helping other people reach their dreams feeds you in some way. You don't do it for us. You do it for you. Yeah. And she says, we benefit from it. You know, we got a private jet. We fl- have nice houses. We live better lives than we've ever had in our lives. Right. Mm-hmm. But you don't do it for us. She said, so quit lying to those people. <laughs> and I'm like, that's why I love you. Yep. But but my point is, the truth is, people say, well, what's your why, Ryan? What's your why? A lot of people who haven't found their why feel like losers because they haven't found it. Yes. So yeah. so you, you shouldn't feel like a loser if you haven't found it. You need to pursue finding your talents. Mm-hmm. See, I can teach you skills, but I can't give you talent. You're born with talent. Yeah, it's right. So, so how many classes do we have in school in finding that talent? None. So I want you to think about that. So, so there's you no, might go join the club or, or sports team because you're right. like passionate about it. That's right. So, so the first thing we need to find is our talents. Now, in the Bible, in in the parable of the talents, a talent was a sum of money. Mm-hmm. One talent was worth you know three hundred sixty thousand. Two talents, seven hundred twenty-three talents, over a million dollars. Right, and and the master gave each person a sum of money based on their own abilities. Mm -hmm. Take it and bring it home with interest, right? And then the people that took it and brought it home with interest, the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. 
That's the only place that's in the Bible. So a lot of people say, well, my life's over and I meet my creator. I want my creator to say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is only in the parable of the talents, right? So when you put that in today's terms, I'm going to give you opportunity, Ryan, based on your skill set, right? Mm-hmm. I want you to take it and do something with it and bring it back with interest. Bring this money back with interest because a talent was a sum of money. So when I talk about talents, I'm talking about your skill, right? You have a skill or we call it a talent in our world that you were given at birth like a birthday gift. Mm-hmm. But until you open it, until you find it, until you nurture it, until you develop it, how valuable is that skill set in the marketplace? Mm-hmm. So I coach very successful people. Go, man, I know I've got a real talent. I've been good. I made money. But I want to lock in on my skill. See, I figured out at 40-something years old, one of my skills was help, was packaging concepts. Like, like for some reason, I can take a concept, deconstruct it, codify it, and then package it, and then market and sell it, right? And I've generated millions of dollars coming up with concepts, or taking a concept and packaging the concept and then going, I'm going to do books, uh, webinars, licensing deals, publishing deals. Oh, yeah, I got this concept called a greatness factory. I'm going to have these all over the country. That's just packaging of a concept. So one of my talents is actually codifying and deconstructing concepts and then converting those concepts to monetization. Mm. Now, where did I find that? I don't know. It's just like it. But it took it took many years. It, oh, it took. Shoot, man. Went from 18, starting reading self-help books at 18. So probably 40 in my 40s, I go, and here's what happened. I started getting referrals from Tim Grover. I got a referral a few weeks ago from 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 uh, Ed Milet's group. And they, these are people who wanted to package their concepts. And those guys said, go see Coach Burr because mm-hmm. he's the best at that. Mm. So I'm like, what Andy Elliott, when I first called me, he said, man, the way you package ideas and the way you talk about them and the way you codify them and the way you break them down. So I kept hearing that from all of these guys, Brad Lee. I'm out here in Vegas with Brad Lee, and he's like, man, if I could just package concepts like you, you know, he said, because I don't package them like you do. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is how you package or deconstruct a concept. Mm-hmm. You have all this knowledge. Now break it down, synthesize it, teach it to me in a way that I could learn it, right? Mm-hmm. Call it something. And Brad's gotten a lot better at that because we started having conversations about that probably, I don't know, five or six years ago. Yeah. No, that's amazing. And yeah, I was just thinking through like, as you're speaking, my mind is like going back to reflection, not mm-hmm. only on myself, but like thinking about other people and experiences mm-hmm. and trying to find examples of what exactly yeah. you're saying so I can yeah. relate to it even better. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one thing that really stood out to me is like, man, we're all given talent, right? Yes. God has given us all talent. Yep. And I've and I've talked about the parable of the talents mm-hmm. um, a few times on this show. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because, you know, people are like, well, that's not fair. You know, this guy, why did the guy with five get right. five? And yep. then he also got the guy, the guy who had one, they took it and right. gave it to him too. Right. Like, you know, the guy who had right. the least talent actually got everything taken away from him. Right. Like he didn't even use what little he had. Yeah. And it, it just becomes this thing of, yeah, there's really no excuses. Like I, I wasn't born six, eight, like LeBron. Right. You know, like I'm not going to play in the NBA. Right. Right. Yet. I'm going to use the talent I was given to do exactly like my, my whole goal. This is why I resonate with Grover too. Is like, I just want to win and be the best yeah. and do everything with excellence, not yeah. for anyone else. Right. You know, I think um, Colossians three twenty three says, you know, just do everything with excellence, not for human masters, yep. but for God, you know, that that's it. Don't, don't worry about anything else. So it's like, when I go to an event, I'm like, you know what? I could be the best. Why not? Right. Like, 
if that's where my talent allows me to be, why not? Right. Well, as you were talking, I was thinking about the the person that laid at the at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And Jesus comes along and says, do you want to be made well or not? Yeah. He's like, you have to get up. I, I, like, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I think, but I think the same thing about you have, you have been given these incredible talents, but if you don't find them and if you don't utilize them, and if you don't find a problem that you want to solve with those talents or help another person, then, then that's a big cycle that I, I just, I mean, there's stats out there that say 87% of people live their entire lives and never find their purpose. Sad, you know, so I actually do a boot camp called package your purpose and it's like, find it. So we spend like a half a day or two, a whole day, find helping people just figure out and, and to find it, you asked me earlier and I never answered your question. Typically you have to go into the past, right? Like, like I'm paying you for your past. Your past helps me to build my future. Mm. Okay. But that, pa- that past has to be packaged. Okay. So I took all of what I learned from that single mom, all of what I've learned from those coaches, all of what I've learned under Covey and all the coaches I've had, Sullivan and all these great coaches. And I packaged it up and I go, okay, boom. And I put it into this piece of work and I go, okay, I'm going to distribute my talents to the world through these mechanisms, Mm -hmm. these distribution channels, right? So you package it into wealthy way and you packaged into all these concepts that you have in businesses. That's a form of you packaging your skill sets and talents. Yeah. But there's something you're doing and maybe part of your talent is seeing opportunity and capitalizing on that opportunity. Maybe it's using your past. You see where I'm going? Mm-hmm. But you're using it to distribute it through multiple business channels. Yeah. And I think that's interesting to people because they're like, man, I didn't know I could do, I could distribute my talent that many ways. Mm-hmm. I thought I had to do it one way. Yeah. One thing. And mm-hmm. I would never rely on one thing. Yeah. Would you say, I've kind of thought this about myself is, learning at a high level and being able to execute like a talent. Because for me, when I've thought about my life, whatever I've wanted to do, I've been able to like do it mm-hmm. at a world-class level. And I don't want to like say it to sound cocky, but it was like, I'm 5'10", dude. Like I'm not like this super athlete. Right. Yet I'm like, all right, I want to play baseball. It's like, what do I got to do to be the best athlete I can be? And it's like, mm-hmm. all right, well, I'm going to get on this weight training. I'm going to eat this food. I'm going to get these coaches. Like, I'm just going to execute and be the best I can be. And, you know, I got as far to me, I got as far as I humanly could. Like, right. I, I, I truly feel like I maxed out. Like there wasn't yep. much, many stones left unturned. You know, not one of these guys who had all the talent, they blew it because they're yeah. messing around doing stupid stuff. And then when I got into business, I'm like, all right, I want to be the best house flipper. Like, let's just yeah. turn every stone and do everything. And then you know, social media, I'm like, you know what? I want to be a great podcaster. I want to be a great, you know, content creator. Let's yeah. go do that and learn it. And now like my new thing is golf. I'm like, you know what? Mm-hmm. I want to be like the best celebrity golfer. Right. You know, if like Curry's the best and Tony Romo and those guys, right. I know I could beat them. Right. You know, and they've been playing their whole lives. I don't need to play yeah. my whole life to beat them. Like I know I have the ability to learn a concept really quickly Yeah. and like take it from my mind to like, doing it and executing it with my body. I don't know if that's a talent. Well, well maybe, but. maybe there's a, there's a theme there and maybe the talent is learning something quickly, mm-hmm. dissecting things very quickly, but, but also combining that with a desire to be the best at it mm. and putting those things together and then applying that to whatever you choose to do. That right. could be a talent. Yeah. Cause I think the thing itself is irrelevant. Yeah. 
Because I think, I, I mean, I truly believe if, if I was truly passionate about doing whatever this next thing is, yeah. it would be the same result. Yeah. I would be really good at it. Right. As long as the desire to be good at it was there. Well, and that part of the talent could be the persistence to stay with it until you achieve that goal. Right. So I look at it like ingredients. Like you, you put these ingredients from your past into this. Like, like my thought as you were talking was like, where did that, where did that desire to be excellent come from? What was the revelation? So think of it like this. My buddy Tim Story gave this to me when I was out on tour with him and Sharon Lecter. Um, first, we have a big revelation, which is a sudden dramatic moment. Mm-hmm. Then we have a, a deep conviction as a result of the revelation. Okay. Then we take a lot of action as a result of that conviction. So it's like somewhere in your past, there was a big revelation, man, I want to be the best at what I do. Now, what was the story of origin for that? Like, when did you have that revelation? It's like, it's like, boom, flip the switch, baby. <laughs> I, and I don't know, dude, like <laughs> it, I, I've thought about that before because I'm like, if I'm going to do something, I literally will not do it unless I feel yeah. I can be the best. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. That's why like I was on stage and I was like, man screw it. I just have to be the best. Like there's yeah. this, there's no, other, if I'm going to speak on stages the next 20 years of my yeah. life, I need to get really good yeah. at it. Yeah. And Ed Milet and I were talking about this on the podcast you watched yeah. where he was like, bro, where did you learn to podcast and speak? And I said, I don't know. Yeah. I just have been doing it. I've, yeah. I just talk to people and yeah. try to connect and get deep. Yeah. And he's like, you're like extremely good. He's yeah. like, you could be like you could be yeah. really good if you just had proper training and preparation and right. everything. Well, if you add that proper training, like you did in your sports background with your natural talent, that's right. how people really become world-class. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I think it was Robbins that told my man, you got a great voice for speaking. You yeah. should be speaking more. Mm-hmm. See that talent is typically seen by another person. That's why I always say, you can't see the picture when you're inside the frame. Mm. So your natural talents, it's very hard for you to see. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people come to me and say, I want to be a great speaker. How do I speak with your intensity or, but it's very natural for me. Yeah. I'm a coach. Like, like it's not that I've had years of speaker training. I've just been doing it for 31 years. Yeah. And it's very natural for me. Now yeah. there's some things that I'm not that good at. And I would even argue, and this is like not a slight at you, yeah. but I'd be like, you naturally should not have the ability to speak at such a high level. I mean, yep. you've got like your accent. You're not like this big, like intimidating guy like Ed, who's like, or yeah. Tony, That's right? right? That's right. Like these guys look like they should be That's great right. speakers. Yep. They speak with yep. just this. I don't even know what you would describe it. Mm-hmm. Yet you have found a way to do it in yep. your own unique talent. Like, yes. I, I feel like you've truly maximized what you have. Yeah. And it's, it's, there was a book that, um, Eugene Peterson wrote, you probably like this book. It's called Long Obedience in the Same Direction. I'm going to write that down. It's a Christian book. Okay. He was a pastor. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of his reflections on being a pastor dealing with people in their faith. And the title, Long Obedience in the Same Direction, could be applied to a lot of things though, right? Right. Like like when you do as many podcasts as you do with the 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 quality of talent that you do them with and you just like Ed getting so good at doing podcasts after he interviews all these people when you have a long when you find your talent and have a long obedience in the same direction with that talent you become world class mm-hmm. and and it just it is what it is right you do it so many times because I was hesitant yeah. it's funny because I do have this deep southern accent because I live in Nashville and, it's, <laughs> and uh, when I first started speaking Ryan I was I was so nervous to go to 
New York City or Boston. I'm like, yeah. these people are going to hate me. And they loved it. <laughs> like I, I like I remember coming out of Boston once and they were lined up around the thing and they're like, man, we love your accent. Yeah. And it's like, that's who I am. You yeah. know, that's, that's, I was raised in a small town in Tennessee by a single mom, man, with, with, you know, 10,000 people inside the county line. You yeah. know, it's just, it's just who I am. What do you, yeah. Cause even thinking about, dude, you were a basketball coach. Yeah. You're like a small guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I was a point guard, man. I was, yeah. my, my high school coach called me professor. You were before the professor on N one from for, yeah from from the time I was a kid, all of my coaches said to me, "You're going to be a great coach someday." Starting at six years old, mm. my first little league baseball. I was actually a better baseball player than basketball. Why? I mean, you would have had a better chance. I, I was I was small. I played you know I played every I, I was a played catcher. I played shortstop. I played second. I played third. Um, third was interesting. Um. I hated third. Yeah, I hated third too. And then my, my high fast, school coach dude. moved me over to third. And um, I played for a guy who played for the Cincinnati Reds. And in high school, he would stand on the third base side and just throw it up. It was left-handed and just hit, hit him at me as hard as he could. Bounce <laughs> off my face. But but I appreciated him because he was so tough. And he brought a level of professional because he played in the major leagues. Right. To my little school in the middle of nowhere. But, uh, you know, from the time I was six years old, my coaches said to me, when you grow up, you're going to be a great coach. It was, And I went back and asked. I actually went back and asked my mom, when did you see this prey drive in me kick in, right? Was there somewhere where I made a decision to be great? Or, or And she's like, you know, it's just the way I raised you. I always spoke to you like you were an adult, just me and you. It was like, it was like, you know, I just knew you were going to do something. Yeah. And that's the way I talked to you as a child. And then I put you with all these coaches your whole life, you know? Yeah. I... I've had this conversation a few times now because I had a guy on who was talking about how you're raised as a child. The first 10 years of your life mm -hmm. pretty much shapes who you are and your belief system mm. and how you perceive the world and everything. And I was reflecting on how my parents raised me. Mm -hmm. My parents are still married to this day. Yep. I was raised in a Christian home. Mm -hmm. um, my dad was an entrepreneur, which I never wanted to be an entrepreneur, by the way. Yep. You know, he owned convenience stores. My mom was a realtor. Okay. Surprise, surprise. Yep. I'm in real estate and entrepreneurship. Yep. Um, my grandfather played for the Packers. My great-grandfather was an Olympic water polo mm. athlete. My my mom was a uh, college tennis player. So I guess athletics runs in our blood genetically. Um, but just thinking like the first 10 years of my life, my parents always told me I could do anything. Yes. Yep. You know, my my mom, my dad were like, you're going to play in the big leagues. Like yeah. you can do it. And it wasn't like a delusional yeah. thing that some parents have. Yes. It was like, no, you could do it. Your grandfather did it. That's right. You're, you're like, we've always done it. Yeah. And you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to yeah. get coaching. Yeah. And the cool thing was both of my parents realized they weren't experts in baseball. Cause that, that was my chosen mm -hmm. field and I didn't do anything that they did. Right. And they they just got me the best coaches. They just yeah. whatever I wanted to do. I'm like I want to I want to start working out. All right, let's get you a bench press. Let's That's let's right. get you whatever you need. Well, I think you know what like it's like generational confidence you guys had. And uh, I did my conference a few weeks ago. I do a smaller conference, typically you know about 200 people. Just some of my top clients that come in. And um, at the end of the conference, my 11 year old daughter came to me and said, "I want to finish the conference up." I want to come up and speak and finish the conference. And I watched her as some of the other people were speaking and she was mental mapping. I do a lot of mental mapping and she was mental mapping things on her own. 
And then at the end, she said, Dad, I want to finish the conference. And I'm like, that's my girl, right? And I got up there and she's like, thank you guys for coming. I really appreciate, you know what I mean? Yeah. Then she got on, she's like, Dad, I've, I freaked out. I didn't say what I wanted to say. <laughs> and I said, but that's the point. It's good that you did that. Yeah. It ain't easy being up on that stage at 11. Mm -hmm. yep. So so when I was 15 years old, I had a speaking coach, okay? And we had a dentist, this is crazy, because I had a local dentist who had a theater arts background. Mm -hmm. He ran the local performing arts center, okay? And he mentored one kid per year, and he chose the kid he wanted to mentor. And I remember like it was yesterday, came to my, they pulled me out of class, and they said, uh, Dr. Deason wants to speak with you. And he said, you know, I see a lot of potential in you. And I would like to mentor you for the next year on speaking. Mm. I went to his house every night after baseball practice for two hours. Teach me how to write, speak, make eye contact, work a stage. And then I end up running for a national office in the Beta Club, which is an honor society. And I won. So part of my job at 15 and 16 was to go around the country speaking at other conventions. Mm. So my first, my first one was 6,000 people, Shreveport, Louisiana. I still remember, man, I was scared to death, but, but I went out and I did it. Now, fast forward to when I'm 47, think about what I do for a living. Yep. I coach and I speak. Now I'm getting into more real estate plays because that's a passion of mine. Um, but it all started with just coaches going, man, you can do this. You have some potential. So how much do you think that your childhood defines what you are today? A lot. I think that's where you develop identity. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that strong identity early in life, I coach a lot of people today who do not have that identity. Yes. So their confidence is predicated by something external from them. Mm -hmm. They place their confidence in other people's hands. Like all the real estate people I, I coach, their confidence is tied up in the, what the Fed is doing. or How, how many properties they own. Yeah. yeah. So, so they don't have identity. Yeah. And I think that's instilled. I do believe that's instilled early in life. Just remember the greats develop a concept of themselves, typically early in life. Mm-hmm. You know, what's funny is I, uh, I totally agree because I don't really care what anyone says about me or, you know, like, yeah. I, I don't care how much real estate I own or like, right. that doesn't define me. Right. Right. Um, but I do see that with so many successful people that you, that, that they're just trying to, I guess, achieve things in the world so yes. that people validate them Yes, because they don't have their own internal belief. Yeah. And the the more I look, I mean, I feel bad about it, but it's like a lot of it, they just couldn't control. I mean, yeah. it's, it's how they grew up. They weren't in control right. of that. So the one thing I think about is like, how do you change that? If that was yeah. your upbringing, like I'm just blessed that yeah. I was raised the way I was raised. I didn't get to choose it. Right. A lot of people, I'm going to use a strong word here, kind of, kind of have an ignorance to their potential. They don't even know that they have more potential. Right. Um, my wife had never come to a self-help workshop until she came to one of mine at 30 years old. Did she, so she was a student she was at a one of your, and then you were like, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to take you to the back for, she, for some extra help. <laughs> she, uh, well, her, she was selling cell phones for Verizon Okay, and, and they kept telling her she had potential. Now, potential is an idea of kinetic energy that is stored until activated. Okay. Okay. It's. It's an idea of embryonic growth. It will be better today than we were yesterday. We'll never stop getting better. Yeah. But most people may not even know they have potential until somebody says, man, you got some potential. So her manager sent her and they said, go see this coach. He's really good. He'll help you be one of the top salespeople. 30 years old. She never read a self-help book. She comes to this workshop. She's this beautiful 
country girl from West Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And she sits in the back and I just, you know, she's taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. And at the end, she walked up to me and said, sir, I need to meet with you. I need to talk to you. And she was really pretty. And I'm like, sure, I'm available <laughs> right now. We've got dinner. You I'm know, like, I'll cancel just, my plans. Yeah, step over here. Yep. But the truth is, she had so much potential. Like my wife is now writing her own her own books. Uh, we do couples retreats yep. at, our, at our house in Florida. Awesome. She wrote a book called Living with a Monster. <laughs> How do you thrive in partnership when you're married to a driven person? My my wife probably needs to read she it. She does. Yeah. Yes. And so we do, we take 15 couples at a time. We sell out every time. Okay. We t- go to Florida. Uh, we rent these big multi-million dollar houses. And then they come to our personal house and we do the coaching there for three days. It's probably one of the best things we do. Mm. And we do about six of those per year. Oh, nice. So my wife handles all of the design of our real estate. She's designing our greatness factory in Nashville. She nice. does, she That is her talents. And she would tell you that this, that that I helped her find her talents mm-hmm. and then utilize those talents. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's kind of how it happened. And then we have three beautiful children. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. So how does your wife play a role in, I guess, the business and everything that you've got going on? Is she um, staying at home with the kids? Is she writing the books on the stuff? Like, how's that work? She, she gets involved in projects she wants to get involved in. Right. She doesn't work full time in the business. Yeah. Uh, we do have a nanny that, that, helps us and we have a family assistant that travels with us and all those type things. But, but my wife will say, I want to take on this project. Yeah. I'm going to redo this or I'm going to take this couple's retreat. Like this is a big passion of hers now taking this couple's retreat and, and she's looking at the overall business. She's like my wife. She looks at the business. She's like, all right, I like that. You know, can't, Count me in for that. I'll That's do right. that. And so when I was speaking in Mexico last week, she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll go to that one. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you know, man, I'm speaking in Florence, Alabama. She's like, no, nah, you go. No, nah, just let but me know Mexico, how it goes. She's like, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> you know, but, but, but my wife is very grounded. Yeah. Strong faith. Yep. Very strong faith. And, and, um, you know, that she, she's really been, you know, it's like if God could pick a person for you. That's why she's, you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, there's days it's like, how, how did you and I end up together? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because we're so different. And then it's like, that's why. Yeah. You know, you're the perfect partner. Yeah. My wife, she's super passionate about um, the kingdom as well. That's why we're married. And yep. we got married super young. Um, she had just turned 21. About to celebrate 10 years uh, nice. next month. Nice. So three kids as well. Yeah. Um, but in the business, she's like always like down for whatever I basically ask her for. I'm like, Hey, like, you know, we could use your help with this for whatever reason. Right. Mm -hmm. And she's like, all right, you know, I'll do that. But like the one that she's super passionate about is this next event. We're going to have our first ever just full on worship service at the event. And so she's plays the keys and she's like, all right, I'm heading up the worship service. Like I'm the worship director. I'm like, all right. I wasn't asking you, yeah. but <laughs> you, you are the worship director. Yeah. And so, uh, she's building out the whole band and getting all the tracks and, you know, all the nice. things that got to happen. And, um, she's super excited about it. Yeah. Well, I, I call that intentional congruence. Yeah. And that's where everything feeds everything, mm-hmm. you know, and the business and, and the faith and, the the, the, uh, everything is tied together in some way that is in more of a harmonious way. And if you could include them, then it's, it's a good deal. Yeah. Right. For sure. I'm curious to see how my kids evolve <laughs> over the years into yeah. this. I don't know. Well, my daughter decided to be a cheerleader versus a basketball player at first. I was like, oh, sweetheart, are you sure? You're on the wrong like, side. Like your dad was a coach, like a great coach. And she's like, dad, I just, 
you know, but, but we went to our first competition on Sunday and, and, um, she has to show up. She has to perform. She, other people are depending on her. Yeah. She has a coach that pushes her and that's really all what I want for her. Mm-hmm. Right. As uh, that, that she's part of a team sport. Yeah. And she learns responsibility and discipline. That's what, that more than anything, what I want for her and, and who's coaching your kids is more important than who the president of the United States is. Oh, for sure. So it's very important for parents watching this. If you're, if your children have a desire to do something to get them the best coaching they can get. Mm-hmm. Like place and, and you need to do the same thing for the people watching. Like you need to be coached by the best people in the world. Yeah. If you want to perform at the highest level in the world. Yeah. No. And that's what I was saying earlier about my parents. They weren't baseball people. Mm-hmm. So they're like, let me just get Ryan the best coaches and the best teams and yeah. you know, whatever he's able to do. And with um even my wife, my wife was a middle school teacher before we had kids. And so she coached the cheerleading team too. Yeah. Because she was a dancer. Um but I guess like even on another note for you, like, you know, you just released the book, flip the switch yep. and that's your 18th book. Yes. And that was your first New York times bestseller, wall street journal, wall street journal, yep. bestseller. Yep. Like I, I'm sure that these were goals throughout, you know, your books to try and get it. Yeah. Like what I guess made the difference this time around, how fulfilling was it to, yeah. to finally hit a goal like that? The, the difference is I made a decision that the book was going to hit the list. And I hired Rory Vaden, who did a fantastic job. Well, I actually, I think I asked Ed Milet, who launched your book? Yeah. And he told me Rory Vaden. And I'm like, okay, I'm calling Rory Vaden. And he's yeah. in Nashville, where I live. Easy. And so I went and spent half a day with Rory Vaden. He gave me five strategies. He drew it up on a board and I executed it. Yeah. And then I felt stupid for not doing this earlier. <laughs> <laughs> because the truth is, um, it's not as easy as people think to sell that many units of a book, no, right? It's not. And, and and a lot of people think, well, it'd be easy. You know, I sell 4,000 units of a book in a week or whatever. If you're not known or you don't have a television show or you're not famous, it's a lot harder than you think, right? Yeah. And then in week one, we had this huge snafu where I was supposed to be number four on the Wall Street Journal list in the first week and Amazon sold out of books. They didn't have the inventory. And I actually sold more books than Amazon got from my publisher. And it's like, Rory called me and said, man, I cannot believe I got to tell you this. This is a total disaster of you actually should have been number four this week on that list, but they ran out of inventory. There was like 1,500 books they didn't ship. And if they don't ship them, even though they've been purchased, they don't count them. Wow. So that that hurt. And he's like, all right, but we still got a chance to, to hit it, you know, that kind of thing. But it was great to learn that capability. So the the differential was I hired a coach. Yeah. The differential is I hired somebody who had done it multiple times with some of the best people in the world. I followed step-by-step in exactly what he told me to do, and it worked, mm-hmm. which is the point. I should have gone back on the other books, the other major published books. Now, here's what's interesting. He said, based on the publisher you used, you're not going to hit the New York Times list. Mm. I don't even think Ed's book has been on the New York Times list because – they have some kind of weird relationship with certain publishers. That so they, like, nah, you guys ain't getting on. That's right. Yeah. So the first thing Rory told me is you're not going to hit the New York Times. So if this is a goal of yours, forget it. Mm. You can do Wall Street Journal and other lists, whatever, but but let's shoot for the Wall Street Journal. How do you think um, like making one of these lists has impacted you? Uh, it raises your speaking fees. 
gives Got you it. a chance to say, I'm a competitor like you yeah. are. So it's yeah, like yeah. putting a little sticker on there that says Wall Street Journal bestseller. I yeah, mean, yeah. it's just, you know, it's just one of those things that yeah. it's a prey drive activator. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, man. I'm I gonna, thought about it and I'm like, yeah. I don't know that it like is going to do anything for me. Well, you know, I have an agent in New York City and he's like, hit the list, sell 10,000 units. I can go back and get you a big advance on the next one. Okay. So the way it works in the publishing world is is, is with your following. You know, I would I would suspect that you could get a, a major book deal just with your following. That's the number yeah. one thing. I've sold over at. ten thousand of the last one. So so if you took that plus your following, there a publisher get the right agent. The publisher is going to take it. They're going to shop it. The agent's going to shop it to the best publishers. And you say, I want to go with these four people. What would what do you think somebody would pay me? Uh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> for, well, they, it depends on the publisher, different yeah. publishers. I've, I've seen first time authors with big followings get a hundred thousand dollar advance. I've seen two fifty. Yeah. I've seen, you know, I've seen small advances. Yeah. Like I got a small advance on my first one with Wiley because I was unknown. This yeah. was 10 years ago. I didn't have a big following. See now today I can say I've got a bigger following. I'm getting in front of more people. Yeah. You know, Hey man, let's, let's see if we can go do that. But if you sold 10,000 units, in the publishing world, they look at that like, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. I'm really making an investment. The advance is just an investment. Yeah. They're just loaning you the money and then they're keeping it until you, right? Until you earn it back. Yeah. So, but, but having a, having a hit the wall street journal, I mean, it's, 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 it says you're in the game, man. Yeah. You're up there. You're in the game. You're, you're legitimate. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what it says to people. Got it. Yeah. I'm actually in the process of writing my third right now. Um, <laughs> so and this might be the first time I've ever said it, but yeah. So we're writing my third and you know, the first two I've self-published and yep. just self-promoted and did my thing and yep. it was cool. But my only problem with the publishers is like, you don't really have control of yeah. what you want to control. Like, so for me, I'll sell my book for a dollar on Kindle. I don't really give yeah. a crap. Like yeah. I just want people to have it. And in addition to that, I don't really want them critiquing like, chapters and all yeah. this crap. Like I, that's yeah. why I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. I don't want anyone to tell me what I yeah. can and can't do. Well, I look at three returns. Uh, we're trained to think of return on investment mm-hmm. ROI. Yep. But I also look at return on objective. Okay. ROO. What is the objective? Is it to become known in the world? Is it to have your book in all the bookstores? Is it to be in all the airports? So if you go through airports, you can see, you see where I'm going. Is it to raise your status? Yeah. Is it to make money? Is it for lead generation? Yeah. Oh, you know, so I've used books before to generate thousands of leads that I self-published, yeah. right? And that, right. the purpose of the writing the book was to was to Get leads. generate leads. Uh, then I look at return on energy, okay? Writing a major published book is a major labor of love. It took me two years. Okay, listen to this. I turned Flip the Switch in to McGraw-Hill at midnight the night it was due. <laughs> Weird. Because I'm out Parkinson's spe- law. Because I'm out speaking and I'm I'm all over the, the country. You know what they said? It's what? not good enough. Do it again. Wow. I spent a whole nother year. They were right. I didn't get at first, I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, but there's like, this book is about flipping the switch. You have another gear. That's why my editor they gave me a whole a whole new editor who was much better than the first editor. And we literally went back and almost rewrote the whole book. And it was a better book because of that, but it, it pushed my pub date back a whole nother year. Wow. So it was a, it was like, oh my gosh. So I go what I call into the woods. I'm a creative by nature, right? I, I create a lot. I think a lot. I read a lot. I study a lot. I write a lot. Um, 
So when I'm writing a book, I schedule all of these writing trips where I go to the mountains or to the ocean and I just, it's just me. And that's one thing I love about my wife. I can say, I need to go do this. And she'll say, go do it, you know, mm. go, go spend time and get it right. And so I do that maybe over a two year cycle, X number of times to finish the book. Yeah. Do you think that when I finish this book, I should go try and shop it to a publisher? I think you don't have to finish the book to shop it to a publisher. Okay. I think the first thing you need to do is, is get the agent. And I can introduce you to people who okay. have represented me. And what they will do is take a manuscript. They they don't have to have the whole book. They'll they'll put the chapters in there just like I did for the new book. They'll put all of your credentials, all of your following, and then they'll take it and start shopping it to the publishers. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think it would be hard. I think with The Wealthy Way, I was so passionate about getting it done quick and – you know, self-publishing, obviously the moment it's done, <laughs> go off to the presses and you know, it's the brand behind everything we do. So I was like, the right. publisher wants to know how many people follow you yeah. and with your podcast and, and your brand. I mean, I, I don't think it would be hard for you to get a book deal at all. Yeah. Yeah. I really don't. Yeah. I'll explore. And it, it could be, you know, as if, if you're interested in the objective of becoming, continuing to be more mainstream, you know, the reason I wrote the book I'm writing now is because my agent's like, it's controversial. Okay. Screw your why is going to be a little controversial. Yeah, yeah. There's going to be a lot of people who like it, but he's like, I can get you on Good Morning America with this one. Because mm. I sent him 10 books I wanted to write. I okay. said, here's 10 that I'm thinking about writing. I was going to do Habits of the Top 1% of Performers. I was going to do, you know, Remarkable Boldness. I was going to do, you know, and he's like, out of everything you sent me, if the objective is to be more mainstream America, then this is the one that's going to do it. Do you, are, so you're just always writing a book. I mean, to, to tip, release tip, 18. In, in between major published books, I write small self-published books. Okay, got it. So in between these big ones, where it takes two years, I'm writing small ones. And I use them for my students. I use them for new content. Oh, okay. I use them for lead generation. All right. That's so so they're not all major published books, right? I think I've had five major publishing deals. So out of the 18, yeah, self-published, self-published, major publisher, you know, that kind of thing. I was thinking of doing that for... um. I've been writing daily devotionals mm -hmm. for the last like year. And I was thinking of just packaging all those together as like a little. I, I think there's, book. there's not a lot of people in your space that I see crossover between faith and business. Yeah. I think there's a, there's probably a, a niche there that you could help people with. Cause I don't see a lot of that. Yeah. Right. right? Like I, when I speak, people know I'm a faith-based person cause I use uh scripture. And I think when you saw me at 10 X, I was probably one of the only people that didn't use a lot of language, you know, <laughs> but you'd be shocked how many people I attracted because of that. Oh, for sure. And they're like, man, you know, I was just looking for one dude that didn't cuss every other word. And I don't, I don't, I don't judge people. I'm like, you know, I mean, Hey man, it's, it's their deal, but that's not who I am. And I live right in the middle of the Bible belt. So I just don't use a lot of that language. Yeah. You know, it's funny is every time um, when we do a podcast or even when people speak at WealthCon, like. I don't ever give them any direction. Yeah. I'm like, just be you freaking say whatever you say. Don't bother me, man. Yeah. And then like, they'll, they'll always like apologize. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. I'm like, you can say whatever yeah, you want. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. It doesn't bother me either. It, it yeah. just, you know, where I live and, and, and this is part of my brand is, you know. Yeah. I, I thought about it too, you know, with, cause we were talking about John Maxwell before, because yeah. like, I don't know his full background, but did he start in ministry? He was first? a pastor. And yep. then he crossed over to kind of the business side. I think he, I think I'm not sure about this. I think what brought him to that world is he did, he did, he did like promise keepers and big 
Christian conferences. Yeah. And then somewhere along the way, he just kind of crossed over into more secular, but he still goes back and preaches at a his church in Florida. I mean, he's still, you know, yeah, he's really good. He's got great people skills too. Mm-hmm. Because I know like he would be a guy, Dave Ramsey's another one. Yep. And I know Dave started everything in the church before mm-hmm. kind of like just branching to secular. Yep. But to your point, I haven't seen anyone do the opposite. Yeah, that's right. So I think there's a, you know, there's a place there and I look for what, what is everybody the best at, right? Like how, this combination of skill sets, like this, is a faith-based guy and he's really good at this, but you're right. I don't see a lot of going that way. I see the other way. I started over <laughs> in the not, Christian arena. It's not arena. really lucrative to go the other way. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, sometimes that's why I'm just like, okay, I need to go over here. Yeah. But, but you know, you'd be shocked how many pastors I've, uh, I've attracted in my career that are bivocational. So they're doing a job but they're a part-time pastor at a small church. Oh, there's a lot. Uh, I actually wrote a book called The Accountable Church. Okay. Uh, my pastor came to me and said, will you coach me? And I said, man, I've never coached a pastor, right? I don't feel qualified to, to tell you how to run a church. He said, I want you to coach me on that. I want you to coach me being a leader, connecting to my team, being a better coach. Well, I would get in there and ask him questions. This is crazy. I'd say, what's your what's your churn churn rate? <laughs> He's like, what do you mean? <laughs> He'd be like, okay. And I'm like, you know, people that come to church and then they don't come back. And I said, do you know how many people are visiting every week? And how, how do you connect with people? I said, what if I miss for six months and I don't come? Does somebody call me? And he's like, man, there's all these things that we could do better. <laughs> he said, you got to write a book on that. I wrote a book that I never really pushed uh, called The Accountable Church. And it was how to keep people engaged in a Red Bull ADD society. Mm-hmm. And it, it's probably more prevalent today because of COVID, because the church rates have dropped so significantly. Yeah. But uh, it was a book about engagement. Mm. How do you keep the Christian engaged and going physically to church? See where I'm going? Yeah. Showing up every week. Because I was thinking about my big coaching programs, and you run programs where no matter how good it is, people just get lost, and then you never see them again. And you can add engagement mechanisms and one-to-one coaches. And, yeah, yeah. and I kept thinking, there's got to be a way the church can get better at this. Yeah. No, that's amazing. I, um, I had a similar idea actually, because with COVID, you know, the Bible says, do not give up meeting together. Right. right? And, you know, we started this, this new thing called wealthy kingdom Mm -hmm. and we launched it about four months ago. And, you know, it's for Christian entrepreneurs and Mm -hmm. you don't have to be a Christian yet, but you know, you can come and explore and everything else. But the whole premise is I want to launch Bible studies worldwide. And so with the initial launch, um, we now have 50 Bible studies across the nation. And so we're all following the same curriculum. Yep. We have a weekly call, you know, we're doing mission trips and all these other cool things. And we got another 50 in the queue. We're training up those Bible study leaders. So we'll have a hundred by the end of the year. Yeah. I mean, it's only been a few months, right? right? Like I don't even push it. Right. You know, like once I turn on, you know, all the things I know how to do. Right. To generate leads. I mean, I, I think it's going to be the biggest Christian business organization in the world. Wow. Um, as far as, and then we're in um, the process of becoming a nonprofit. Nice. But uh, for me, it's like using the talent. Right. God gave me the talent yeah. to reach entrepreneurs and to have authority. Um, he also gave me, I guess, the, the passion on the faith side. Yes. And the ability to market and use social media right. and funnels and all yes. these other things that can grow it. Yep. At such a rapid pace. Yeah. And so, you know, the more I'm looking at it, the more I'm just thinking like, okay, you know, what, 
how big is this going to be? Right. You know, like. See, your skill set, though, is deficient, I believe, in that world a lot, in the kingdom world, as far as the funnels and the marketing. Yeah, they don't and know. The, they don't know. And, and, they, and they don't know. So it's like, this is the way you have to reach people today. Now, yep. when it comes to meeting, it's, it's no different than people working from, from home. You could tell me all day long that you can watch church on Sunday morning online and, and it'd be a good experience. And I get it, right? I know when I watch it online, if I'm not, if I'm somewhere in the world traveling, it's totally different than me going yes. and placing myself in what I would call the environment for the Holy Spirit to do its work in me, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something even, even during the music or during that, that it's, that I can't get sometimes when I'm on my own yeah. or I'm in a city or I'm trying to watch it on things. So coming together is a very important part yeah. of the experience. Well, and that's the whole point of this with Wealthy Kingdom is I'm literally creating the local environments for people. Like I want yeah. one in every single city so that there's yeah. no excuse for why you can't at least get together with other, yeah. you know, believers. And it's not a replacement for the church by any means. Right. It's, it's actually, you know, we're, I, I would say we're a parachurch and, you know, it's also going to be, I would say a, <laughs> a lead funnel to the local churches because there's a lot of Christians Right. Or people who, you know, are just kind of like exploring, yep. like, you know what, dude, I don't want to go to church, but I will go hang out right. with, you know, other business right. people. And, and like, I think sometimes the business person, you know, I was in a church in Tennessee where there weren't a lot of business people. It was more, you know. W2. Yeah. Blue collar. Yep. Uh, but that was kind of the nature of that church. The pastor was a former college baseball player. He was a blue collar f- fisherman hunting. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And that's not me. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like I know, I live in Tennessee, but I don't hunt and I don't fish yeah. and I, I'm a business guy. You got a gun, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got to have a gun. Yeah. You, you got to have a gun. But, <laughs> but he came to me and he said, man, I, we don't have enough stuff for business guys. Yeah. Will you help us? Yeah. He said, I want you speaking at like men's events and let's yeah. do some business stuff. So there's an alternative. I was like, man, cause I, if I went to a small group, it was like me and six dudes at yeah, home. It's hard to connect. And I'm like, uh, I don't. I mean, I don't connect here. Yeah. And I, I felt the same way. Um, cause look, man, I mean, obviously I love hanging out with other Christians, but like what's going to connect you, um, and, and, and take it even deeper, right? Yep. Like how do we do more together? It's like when I talk to, you know, friends who, like you said, are just normal W2 guys, like it's, there's nothing wrong with it, right. but it's just like, we don't really have a lot of relatability beyond maybe like one aspect of life. Right. And so being able to have, deeper relationships, um, you know, in all those ways is amazing. Yeah. And that's why too, at, you know, our, our wealth cons now we're, we're doing the worship service because I'm going to give people a taste of like yeah. what church looks like. Yeah. Cause most don't know, you know, most right. are, they have this idea of like Catholic mass, right? <laughs> that's how they perceive church. Right. Well, I think that's a nice, a new dimension to a conference. Yeah. Nobody does it. I'll, I'll tell you this. I was thinking about a workout I used to work out with this Marine in the mornings and at first we started in a dojo because he didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't a gym. So he rented this dojo and it was like 10 business dudes. Right. And we would sit and talk first, just like his men. So anybody got something they want to say, something they're going through. Right. And, and some guy would say, man, I'm struggling with my wife. Or I'm struggling with this. And then we would, or we would pray. Okay. And then we would work out. Then at the end he'd say, you know, do a business lesson coach. Like, like get, and it was a, it was an incredible workout. And when I look back on it, it was body, mind, heart, and spirit. Mm-hmm. All four parts of our nature. And then he went to a big gym and we lost all of that. Then it's mm-hmm. just a workout. Yeah. It's physical. 
So if you can ever remember physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and feed all four parts of a nature, and most conferences don't touch on the spiritual part, unless a speaker, you can feel that spiritual part. Because I'll speak at a conference, even like 10X, and people come up and say, I know you're a Christian. I can tell you're a Christian because of your, you know, whatever, Yeah, what I'm projecting. Yep. Um, but I think there's not a lot of that dimension at conferences when people can say, man, I'm going to go to that worship. Like mm-hmm. people are adding the workout component where you all work out together. And <laughs> Your that, boy, Andy. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, it's <laughs> 4 a.m. baby. Yes. Yeah, that like, that's a, that's a new dimension, but there's also the spiritual dimension that people can go. I'm going to go to that, you know, that spirit, that spiritual component. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. Yeah. Well, we're testing it. Yeah. It's going to be fun. You. It's going to be you. fun either way. But yeah, dude, I, I really do appreciate you coming out, man. Yeah. It's, it's been a, it's been a blast um, talking it up. I've, I've learned you. a lot. Of, I'm going to have a lot of reflection. Good. I'm going I'm to, re- I don't rewatch my episodes very often. Yeah. I should just to like, see what can be done better. Watch game tape. Yeah. But I want to rewatch this because you said a lot of things that I really am going to have to ponder Yeah, and think about deeply of like, why do I do what I do? Why, how do I do this better? Yeah. And that's good, man. That's what a good coach does. Well, I, they I, unlock something. Well, in you. I, you know, somebody asked me the other day, did I enjoy doing podcasts? And I go, you know, not not just the good the good ones, you know, because there's yeah. so many that you can do in today's world. And when Dan reached out to me, he's like, man, do you know Ryan? And I said, yeah, I'm watching his work, and he's he's having all my buddies on, and it's all and and I'm enjoying watching the podcast you're doing because it's conversational and you cover some great stuff, man. And it's just a good cool thing. So when he said we should connect, I'm like, I'm in, man. Yeah. No, so I thank you, you. Thank you for having me. And you got a great place here. And, uh, you know, for 34, man, you're doing a lot of big things. So I appreciate proud that. of you, brother. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. You got it. Well, guys, go check out Coach Burt's new book, Flip the Switch. I think they, they probably have copies now on Amazon. Yep. So you guys would be good. And if you need help packaging up an idea and monetizing it, he can help you out. So we'll link to all of his programs and his books down below. And make sure you subscribe so you can see the next one. Peace. The higher you move in your commitment to being the best in the world, the smaller your margin of error. Most of the people I work with know how to handle the weight of failure. They do not know how to handle the weight of success. As long as you're comparing yourself,